This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Ventricular Septal Defects by Dr. David Bailey. Hello, my name is David Bailey. I'm a pediatric cardiologist and pediatric cardiac intensivist. And today we're going to be talking about ventricular septal defects. We're going to start by outlining the anatomy and physiology of this cardiac lesion, followed by typical and atypical presentations. Uh, and then we'll talk about the imaging and diagnostic workup. Finally, we'll talk about the initial management and preoperative considerations for patients with ventricular septal defects. Anatomy and physiology. So to begin with, a ventricular septal defect is a defect that can occur anywhere along the ventricular septum. There can be one or many, and it can occur in one location or even multiple locations. The nomenclature of ventricular septal defects is known to be quite convoluted. Here we use five typical uh, subcategories, the first being muscular ventricular septal defects. This is the most common, presents about 60% of the time, and it's important to know these different nomenclatures in as much as that we now understand a little bit more about the natural history of each of these different types of lesions. Muscular defects, again, as I said, is the most common. They're also the most likely type to close spontaneously. 30% of them, in fact, close spontaneously. They also often present with uh, multiple defects, which are sometimes hard to see by echocardiography. The next most common type is membranous, also known as peri or paramembranous defects. Uh, and these account for about 30% of the total of ventricular septal defects that we see. These lesions are less likely to close on their own. However, sometimes tissue from the tricuspid valve will occlude the defect, um, and, and so they will close in that circumstance. The last three types rarely, if ever, close on their own. Uh, there's the malalignment defect, as is usually seen with tetralogy of Fallot, and again, that rarely closes on its own, and is often seen in addition to other cardiac lesions. There's the subpulmonary, or conal type of ventricular septal defects, and these ones rarely close on their own, if ever at all. Some people would say the diagnosis is an indication for surgical repair because they close so rarely, and they're more common in the Asian population. This is important because they're also more commonly associated with aortic regurgitation, which is more commonly associated with bacterial endocarditis before and even after repair. So for those of you practicing in those countries, this is a lesion you may see more frequently. So keep in mind the increased incidence of endocarditis in that subcategory. And then finally, there's the endocardial cushion defects, as is classically seen in patients with atrioventricular canals, and obviously the incidence of trisomy 21. Uh, that is correlated with that uh, specific lesion. We often talk about the size of ventricular septal defects. We call them large, medium, and small. Large defects are simply those which are greater than 50% the size of the diameter of the aorta. Small defects are typically restrictive, and medium-sized defect lies somewhere in between. Now, the physiology of ventricular septal defects is very interesting. It's a defect that shunts predominantly during systole and then imparts both a volume and a pressure load to the pulmonary circulation and then to the left side of the heart. So during systole, the heart squeezes, the LV contracts and ejects blood. If there's an unrestricted defect, 
into the right ventricle at systemic pressures. Uh, the bulk of the blood is actually ejected into the pulmonary artery because the right ventricle is also undergoing systole at that same time. That pressure and that volume is imparted to the pulmonary circulation which returns to the left side of the heart. The increased volume burden to the left side of the heart is evidenced by left atrial and left ventricular enlargement if the, if the volume burden is significant. It is this volume burden and pressure burden that is that causes the usual presentation that we see. Presentation. So how do these patients present? As you would imagine, they present in congestive heart failure and pulmonary artery hypertension if it's long-standing and unchecked. The congestive heart failure is due to a few things. Uh, the main determinants of the degree of uh, congestive heart failure and failure to thrive is the degree of shunt and the degree of uh, work of breathing that's imparted by that shunt. So the cardiac output needed to maintain a normal systemic circulation in the setting of increased pulmonary blood flow must be increased. Therefore, the total cardiac output in the setting of a VSD is a significant contribution to the metabolic demands needed by these patients. In addition to the increased pulmonary blood flow, there's an increased pulmonary metabolic demand from that work of breathing. Those two things are the main determinants of congestive heart failure and failure to thrive in these patients. Again, if the pulmonary circulation is left unchecked, if the defect is not closed or the PA is not banded as it was in the past, the contribution of a combined volume and pressure load to the pulmonary circulation can, can lead to the development of early onset pulmonary hypertension, sometimes even in the neonatal period if there's concomitant lesions. So what will these patients look like and sound like when they walk into your office or when you see them in your hospital? Uh, they'll be maybe cachectic, have some increased work of breathing, easy tachypnea. They'll be very prone to respiratory infections due to the increased pulmonary blood flow. They'll be particularly vulnerable uh, when they're anemic. So right around two months when they reach their physiologic nadir, the anemia combined with the increased cardiac demands can cause them to have more profound failure to thrive than you might expect. On physical exam, you'll hear a pan-systolic murmur as blood is shunted across the ventricular septum. The murmur will begin right after the S1. It may be slightly delayed if it's a muscular defect with some constriction. Um, the S2 is very important to listen to and to characterize. Uh, if the S2 is accentuated, if it is palpable, if it is singular, all those things denote an increasing degree of pulmonary hypertension. And uh, it's important to understand the progression of pulmonary hypertension, especially in patients with VSDs. If the pulmonary hypertension progresses to a point that the pulmonary vascular resistance is higher than the systemic vascular resistance, the shunt murmur will no longer be appreciated. And those patients are then categorized as having Eisenmenger complex. Other lesions that also present with VSDs determine how they present. We talked a little about, about aortic regurgitation and the increased incidence of bacterial endocarditis. The murmur from aortic regurgitation is rarely heard before the age of five, even though the incidence of aortic regurgitation is, is more common than, uh, we're finding out it's more common now that we have better imaging modalities. Aortic stenosis, some arch hypoplasia and coarctation is also commonly seen with ventricular septal defects. And these patients may have a click they also may de develop more pulmonary, art, pulmonary vascular congestion due to LA hypertension than some of your other patients. 
If you find an ASD with a patient, look for extra cardiac defects as they're more common in patients who have both an ASD and a VSD. And then there's the double chamber right ventricle that can often occur most commonly in those with membranous ventricular septal defects due to hypertrophy of the muscle or the moderator or the muscles around the moderator band itself. The EKG and the chest x-ray in combination with your physical exam finding often are not conclusive enough to diagnose a VSD with double chamber right ventricle and is in this setting especially that echocardiogram is important. Imaging and diagnostic workup. As far as imaging and diagnostic modalities go, uh, the, the workup is pretty intuitive. The echo should delineate the size of the lesion, the location of the lesion, and the physiologic burden, the shunt, and the pressure of the lesion. The EKG, uh, you would look for signs of right ventricular uh, elevated pressure or left ventricular enlargements, and it's the classic EKG findings of RVH and LVH that you would see. If you see either one of those things, consider PS or a significant shunt burden. The chest x-ray usually will show increased pulmonary blood flow and congestion. However, you may see some hyperexpansion on the chest x-ray, particularly in those infants with left atrial enlargement from a large shunt burden, often those who have a VSD and a ductus. The atrial enlargement can cause bronchial compression and hyperexpansion by chest x-ray. The echo is the definitive tool to make the diagnosis, and if there's any question about the pulmonary artery pressures or the characterization of the defect, then cath would be indicated. If pulmonary vascular resistance is markedly elevated above normal limits of three Woods units, closure may not be possible. If pulmonary vascular resistance is within normal limits, closure or continued medical management is appropriate. Initial management strategies. The management of these patients centers around treating the congestive heart failure, the failure to thrive, and then close follow-up again to understand the pulmonary vascular changes that will be ongoing in these patients. In neonates and infants, it is recommended that if the defect is large or unrestrictive and there's any evidence of heart failure, failure to thrive, or ongoing pulmonary hypertension, to close the lesion at that time. If the infant is able to get out to the six-month period and there's no overt signs of heart failure or pulmonary hypertension, medical management is very reasonable in this patient population. Uh, continued use of Lasix and increasing caloric density of their formula are two of the mainstays that we use here to allow them to grow, particularly if it is a muscular septal defect which was known to often close spontaneously over time. Again, it's important to consider endocarditis in these patients. 20% of them will have a residual lesion and puts them at increased risk for endocarditis. So in summary, ventricular septal defects are very common. They're common in isolation and they're common with other lesions. They present with increased blood flow to the left side of the heart with LV enlargement and over time they can progress to pulmonary hypertension. The other summary points of VSDs are, it's the size of the defect that determines the amount of increased left to right shunt. Defects that are restrictive, it's the size of the defect that determines it. Those that are unrestrictive, it is the relative resistance of the two circulations that determines the degree of shunt. They present with heart failure and failure to thrive. Any signs of pulmonary hypertension, including accentuated S2 or cyanosis, is very concerning and should warrant immediate evaluation and consideration for surgical repair. Finally, imaging is best achieved via the echo modality 
X-ray and EKG can be helpful in understanding pulmonary blood flow, and the management of these patients centers around failure to thrive therapies and congestive heart failure therapies, namely Lasix and increased caloric density. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.